0: To cap everything, to kind of end everything, we still have one more week that we're going to do an overview of what we've looked at and finish with uh, Joshua's death. But for this week, uh, Joshua 24, particularly the first 28 verses, I was excited. This was going to be a call uh, of encouragement. This was going to be something that was going to pump us up. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, so that there's no question about it, as we go through and we look at what's happening in Joshua chapter 24, I have come to realize that Joshua 24, in light of what is to come with the people of Israel, is not actually a chapter of great encouragement, although it can be. Uh, Ultimately, it is actually a chapter in which, quite frankly, can be quite depressing. Because we see that Joshua and Israel are having, are renewing or making a covenant with God. And we know that in the end it will be broken, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So as we come to Joshua 24, we're going to look at this idea of the covenant between Israel and God being renewed. Uh, there There is some debate on whether this is a new covenant or whether this is just a covenant that is being renewed that God had already made with Israel. I believe, as I've studied, that it's more likely a renewal of the covenant between Israel and God than a new one. Uh, But as we look at this, either way, we will see truth today that I believe as we look at Joshua 24, even if all the rest of the book, we can walk away and say that's good history, but it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Joshua chapter 24 should instill uh, a angst within us. It should give us a reason to move forward in a certain direction. And I pray and hope that by the time we get done here today, that all of us uh will have a direction that we are stepping into. Uh, so with all that being said, uh, real quick, and I'm going to get through this quickly, so just follow along, especially if you haven't been with us through the time we've been looking at Joshua, but some review as we always do just to make sure we're all at the same place and we have this all in context. So far, we're now at the end of the book of Joshua, but so far in Joshua we've seen themes come out. And one of the themes, the main theme, has been Joshua and the people of Israel are called to have courage. They're called to have courage, be strong and courageous, to trust God actively, that is courage. To put ourselves, to put themselves, to put ourselves in the hands of God, that is true courage. And that's been the theme as we've seen several things happen. We've seen Israel cross the Jordan River. Uh, They did that in obedience to God. They also took time to remember what God had done and they celebrated God's covenant all with them. The covenant that he made all the way back to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I am going to make your descendants great and I'm going to give you this land, the land of Canaan. And so now it's time for Israel to to receive God's promise. Uh, And as they are receiving God's promise through taking the land in Canaan, we see that God has declared his presence with Israel. He is with them. He is the one going before them. And also, he's shown his purpose that ultimately he wants to use Israel as a light to the nations to show his glory, and as, a, as an as and as a tool to bring judgment upon sin that has been waiting to be judged. And, Jesus, and God says, "This is what we're going to do. This is going to show that I not only am here, but I have a purpose." And we see that in Jericho, we see that in AI, we see that in many other cities uh, that are uh, defeated. God shows through this time that he is a God of justice, a God of judgment, but also a God of mercy and a God of faithfulness. He is all of those things, not just one. God fulfills his promises to Israel as we look through the book, chapter by chapter, we see that God fulfills his promises to Israel as Israel conquers the whole of the promised land. God gives them complete control over the land, and as we're gonna see today, as Joshua reminds the people, this was not of their own strength, but this is as God went ahead of them, He gave them the promised land. And then the last few times we've been looking at Joshua, we saw that unity is maintained in Israel after the conquest, that it's that important to God, that the eastern tribes, the western tribes all stayed unified and then we see Joshua last week in chapter 23 had gathered all the leaders of Israel together and he basically says now that I'm about to go I'm about to leave the earth I'm about to die and you as leaders need to carry on the legacy that God has given us and that they need to carry on and continue in courage continue actively trusting in God and so that's a real quick uh, overview of what we've seen so far. And we've seen God do amazing things. We've seen Israel conquer the land. We've seen Israel being given the land and each tribe their own portion of the land. And now we see that Joshua has just gotten done commissioning the leaders to continue encourage. courage. And now in chapter 24, we see Joshua then goes one layer deeper and he not only talks to the leaders of Israel, but now he brings in all of the people. And we're going to see today that he talks to the people and this covenant is renewed. Uh, so, uh, I'm just going to read the, the first verse and the 25th verse to start with, and then we're going to read the whole thing. But just to get a little background of what this whole chapter is about, we see in verse 1 of chapter 24, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. "...and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God." So the leaders are still present, but it also says all the tribes of Israel are present. Now whether every single Israelite is here to listen, or if they are just all represented, we're not exactly sure. But the understanding of what Joshua is about to say is that this is for the whole nation. This is for all the tribes. This is for all of Israel." And what is about to be said in this covenant that is about to be renewed is for the people. And so we see that to be true. So the main idea we're going to see then in verse 25 says this, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statues and rules for them at Shechem. Joshua here takes an active role in the covenant making between Israel and God, between God and his people. Now as I said, this is where the debate can come. Was Joshua making a covenant for himself with the people? Like it was just between him and them? Or was this renewing the covenant between God and Israel, I think as we look at the rest of the context, there is a sense that, yes, Joshua as the leader is asking the people to do something in a covenant, but also there is a sense that God is reminding the people of who he is and asking them to do something. So I believe right now what we see in, in Joshua 24 is that Joshua is the mediator of a renewed covenant with the people of Israel. Joshua is the mediator of a renewed covenant with the people of Israel. Now, one thing before we read the rest of this chapter that I will make a note of is notice where this is happening. Joshua is being the mediator of this renewed covenant and it's happening in a place called Shechem. Now, Shechem, uh, has an interesting past. I'm not going to go back to all the passages that we see Shechem mentioned. I would encourage you maybe someday to do that. But Shechem was the place that God first made a covenant with Abraham. This covenant of the promised land that now Israel has now received was actually made with Abraham in the very same city that they now stand. Abraham made a covenant with God, that, uh, and God promised him the land and promised him nations and promised him descendants. That's where this happened at Shechem. Also, later on, uh, Jacob... You know, remember Jacob wrestles with God after he wrestles with God, uh, his hip sockets put out a joint and God renames Jacob to Israel. If you remember that in the book of Genesis. Well, it's interesting that after that event, the, it, within, within time right after that, he meets Esau again and eventually what Jacob will do is he sets up an altar and he sets up this altar that reminds himself and reminds his family that God is God. God is the God of Israel. That God, as in the renaming of him, now Jacob was taking place, of God, was being God's people. He was being Israel, chosen of God. And it, it, that altar was built, after his name was changed, in the, the city or the area of Shechem. So once again, a place of covenant, a place of worship. Also, uh, we also see, remember the two mountains, as we talked in Joshua earlier, that there were two mountains, that one side on one mountain, they would yell out the blessings of obedience, and on the other mountain, they would yell out the curses of disobedience. Well, those two mountains were right alongside of Shechem. Shechem was in the valley between those two mountains. And so this was a place already in Joshua that they had been, as they recited the covenant between God and Israel. And so Shechem is a very important place. It's a center of worship at this point in a lot of ways because of the covenants that have been made and because of the blessings and cursings that have been pronounced in this area. So that's why Joshua finds himself at Shechem. Later on, we're going to see another piece here uh, that uh, kind of honestly, as I studied, kind of blew me away as we see the relationship between Shechem and what is going on. But we'll get there in a little bit. With all that as kind of background, that Joshua is the mediator of a renewed covenant with the people of Israel, let's read the, 20, the first 28 verses of the of Joshua chapter 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders the heads the judges and the officers of Israel and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many and I gave him Isaac And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea." And when they had cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over this Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword, nor by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat of the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant." Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers uh, that served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord and Joshua said to all the people behold the stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard all the words of the Lord he has spoken to us therefore it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your god so Joshua sent the people away every man to his inheritance on the surface this this chapter seems to that Israel is having a huge victory uh, that they are that they are moving forward in the right direction, but I believe as we look at this passage, we're going to see something quite different. So let's start with our first point that I I see as we think about the fact that Joshua is mediating this renewed covenant, and that there's this covenant between God and His people is first of all based on God's fulfilled promises. Now, as I, as I say the word promise, I just want to go back, and I probably should have done this before we even read, but what is a covenant? Maybe you're sitting here today, we don't usually use the word covenant. We don't make covenants with people. We prefer the word contract, and I believe covenant is even a deeper than a contract. A contract is usually between two people. A covenant is something that is made before the eyes of God himself, a promise. And since we're talking about the covenant, this covenant is based on God's fulfilled promises to start. But a covenant usually has promises from both sides. There is the initiator of the covenant that has promises that he will provide. And then there's the receiver that also will receive the promises but will also be in response promising something. Maybe you've had a contract that's similar to this. Any contract we might sign today, we are saying we're going to give a certain amount of money usually for a service to be provided. But probably the best analogy, and and if you haven't been married, you might not quite understand it, but really marriage is a covenant. Marriage is an agreement between a man and a woman uh, that we are going to love and serve one another for the rest of our lives. That is what a covenant is, that we are making a promise to one another that we will preserve this unity under the eyes and under the hand of God and that this covenant that we're making with each other and with God we will hold true to. And this covenant is made in marriage to say, I am yours and you are mine and we will not go to others. My promise is that I will love and cherish you alone. Not just love and cherish you among many, but love and cherish you alone. That'll be a big thing to think about as we continue on in this chapter. So, the covenant between God and his people, thinking about it that way, first of all, we see the promises of God that have been fulfilled. That the reason that God is making a covenant, the reason that the people have an obligation to, to do something, to respond to God, is because of his promises. And in verses 2 through 4, we read that God's promises uh, were came true in the time of the patriarchs. The time of the patriarchs, if that's a big word to mean the fathers of Israel, it starts with Abraham, he talks about Abraham, he talks about Isaac, he talks about Jacob, and he talks about Esau. And it talks about these are the beginning, the the men that God first called to start the covenant relationship. Specifically, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in there in the line of the covenant. And he says, I brought, and I want to notice one thing here. In verse 3, God says, then I took your father and served other gods. Or I took your father. Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all of the land of Canaan and made his offspring many and I gave him Isaac. Earlier than that he says that Abraham's father and his brother were idolaters. They served other gods. Probably Abraham did as well. They were in a place in which they were serving false gods. They were worshipping false gods and God says I took Abraham out of that. And I made him realize there is only one true God, and that is me, Yahweh, the God of faithfulness. And he, and he draws Abraham out, and then he gives him Isaac, and he gives him Jacob, and he continues the covenant that he made with Abraham. And he wants, and as God is speaking, by the way, Here in verse 2, it does say, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord. These are not just Joshua's words. This is not just a history lesson by Joshua. This is God speaking to the people. And Joshua says, as he's speaking for the Lord as a prophet here, he says, God has been faithful to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. He drew them away from false gods to bring them to himself, away from serving foreign gods to serving Yahweh. And then we move on in this passage in verses 5 through 10 and the reminder that God gives the people through Joshua is God's promises that have been uh, that have been fulfilled in the time of Moses. Uh, and so he's going back through the Old Testament, he's going back through the history that they would know that after Jacob and his family went to Egypt to escape the famine, remember the whole story of Joseph in the end of Genesis. So Jacob goes to Egypt, his family grows in Egypt. Egypt in Egypt, Israel becomes slaves to Egypt. And then we see in these verses that after they are slaves in Egypt, they are freed from Egypt, that God frees them through plagues. Then we're said that he, then God leads them through the wilderness. God leads them through the Red Sea and parts the seas and destroys Egypt. That then after all of that and after they... They get out of Egypt, they're freed, they go across the Red Sea, then they come to the east side of the Jordan, and they have victories over the Amorites, over the Canaanites, over those wicked people that God had pronounced judgment of long before. And through Moses, they had victory on that side of the Jordan before they crossed. And then he reminds them of this story about Balaam. Many of you will recognize the name Balaam, um, and uh, this whole story is basically the king of Moab said to Balaam, you're a prophet of God, go to Israel and curse them. And Balaam says, I'll do that for some money. So he goes and he tries to curse Israel. And I don't remember how many times, this happens several times. And every time Balaam comes to curse Israel out of his mouth, remember who he is a prophet of God, he speaks for God, he tries to curse Israel and instead God forces causes blessing to come from his mouth and and god wants to remind israel here remember even when you were fought against physically i was there to protect you but also when you were fought against spiritually because if balaam would have pronounced a curse because he was a prophet it would have cursed you and yet i forced blessing to come from his mouth god is reminding them that he has been active in their history He wants to remind them all that he's done and that everything they have, they owe to God himself. And then he moves on in this history as God continues to say what he's done and God shows his fulfilled promises in the time of Joshua. This is the most recent time. These people would remember this. They've lived it. They've seen it. And that is that God has given victory over Canaan as they crossed the Jordan River. There's a word here. He says, I caused the hornet to go in front of you. Most likely, this phrase is one talking about fear and terror. If you remember, as we looked at Jericho, remember, they had closed themselves in over the fear of the Israelites because they had seen what God had done. And God sent a hornet of fear and despair even in front of Israel before they even went into the land. But then God makes it very clear in verses 11 through 13 where he says this, And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land. God reminds them, yes, you fought. Yes, you were the one that was fighting physically, but it wasn't by your sword or by your bow that you had any victory. Everything came from me, is what God says. This is not by Israel's effort, but by God's grace, that God has given them the gift of the promised land. He reminds them of these things. He reminds them of his promises. And then he says at the very end here in verse 13, Remember, this land that you have, you didn't work for. All that you have is not yours to own. I gave it to you. You did not deserve this. Once again, it's grace. I gave you land that you had not labored, cities that you had not built, vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. They moved into a nation that was already established. They didn't have to rebuild cities. They didn't have to plant everything. Everything was all set for them. God gave them incredible grace. And God wants them to remind, remember of that. So in the time of the patriarchs, the time of Moses, and the time of Joshua, God, Yahweh, the, the covenant keeper, has been keeping his promises. And that is the basis, the very foundation of this covenant. That brings us to the next point of what this covenant looks like. This covenant is based on God's fulfilled promises, but this covenant requires Israel's full devotion. It requires Israel's full devotion. It doesn't just end here and God says, I gave you all these promises, good for you, yay, let's celebrate. But then it goes on and says, because of all these promises that I've fulfilled for you, because I have done what I said I would do when I spoke to Abraham, this is how you need to respond. And their response is meant to be full devotion. Where do we see that? Well, right in verse 14. Joshua says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and all faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua makes it very clear as he's continuing to speak to Israel on behalf of God. And he says you need to follow God. You need to serve God completely. Verse 14. Israel must serve God completely. The words sincerity and faithfulness. We might miss this. Uh, The Hebrew word for this, as I studied it out, is very interesting. Sincerity and faithfulness, this word for sincerity and faithfulness as they come together, simply is talking about complete devotion. And notice the word complete. Because the definition of the Hebrew word temim, which is translated sincerity here, it means complete or perfect and actually, if you look this up in a Hebrew dictionary, it says means complete in the sense of the entire or the whole thing. Everything. All of it. Not just a part, but complete. And what Joshua is saying, serve the Lord, fear the Lord, and serve Him completely. Be devoted to Him completely. In fact, uh, there have been some Jewish rabbis who have actually translated these words as single-hearted. Now there's some debate there, but the interesting idea there is that a a rabbi would look at this and think that as we talk about this idea of being completely devoted, that you are single-hearted. You're not divided. Your heart isn't divided. Your heart is one, going one direction. And that is definitely part of the idea here as we look at what Joshua is saying to the people of Israel. Actually, moving on to Joshua 24:23, he tells the people to incline their hearts, to give their hearts, their whole hearts. Real quickly, I, we breezed past this as we did the allotment of land, but we remember that Caleb was given a certain amount of land, and this land that Caleb was given, we're told that he was given because he wholly followed Yahweh. He wholly followed the Lord. That's in chapter 14, if you want to go back and look at that, 14, 9 through 14, that Caleb was given his land because he wholly followed the Lord completely, not just in part, but completely. And that is the call upon Israel, and that is honestly the call upon us. As we look at God's promises and based on what he has done, we need to be fully devoted that Israel must serve God completely, and so should we. In verse 15 then, the next thing Israel is told is that as you serve God completely, not partly, but completely, he says, Israel, you must choose Yahweh over all other gods. You must choose the God of Israel, the Lord Yahweh. You must choose him over all the other gods. The truth in verse 15, and this is one of those verses we hear uh, a lot of times, But it says, if this is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, in other words, if this is something you don't think is right, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, or whether the gods your fathers served in the foreign region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Excuse me. These verses, so powerful. And what Joshua is saying is, listen, you're going to worship something. If you're saying it's evil to worship God, then you're going to worship other gods. Joshua is being very clear here that there is no middle ground. Either you are serving false gods or you are serving God and God alone. There is no in-between, I can kind of serve God while I kind of serve other gods. It goes back to the idea of serving God completely. And Joshua is saying, choose this day whom you will serve, either the gods of Egypt, the gods of the Amorites, or he says, but for me and my house, we're serving God and God alone. We are serving Yahweh. He has made the choice, uh, and that choice is to serve God and God alone. The message is very clear, what Joshua is communicating, that to Israel, you need to serve God and serve him alone alone you must choose him over all other gods you can't choose him as one of your many gods it's either one or the other it's either god or it's false gods and obviously joshua isn't trying to encourage the people to follow false gods he's just making the point it's one or the other people you can't have it both ways you can't dip your feet in the water and just stay there you've got to plunge in and that's exactly what joshua is saying keeping in mind that covenant of marriage. Think about it. Covenant of marriage, when uh, the spouses are making their vows to one another, the vow is not, I will love you as one of the many other people in my life. The vow is not, after we're married, I'm still going to pursue other women or other men. No, the vow is, it's you and you only, babe. It's just us. That's the vow that's being made. It's not a vow of, oh yeah, I'll, you know, I'll love you and be with you Sometimes, but then, you know, just keep in mind that there's going to be other people as well. And that's what God is saying about this covenant. This is what Joshua is communicating, that it's all or nothing. There's no middle ground here. And then we see Joshua makes a very clear statement that as for him and his house, he will serve the Lord. A little bit of a rabbit trail. It is Father's Day. Listen. We're not told anything about Joshua's family. I don't know his wife. I don't know how many kids he had. Honestly, we don't know all of that. This book doesn't tell us much about his personal life. It's more about God than about Joshua. We've seen that. But Joshua here makes a very bold statement when he says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Listen, fathers, and I throw myself into this, obviously, because I'm a father as well. Joshua took spiritual responsibility for his family. He took spiritual responsibility for his family here. I don't know how that looked. I don't necessarily think it was like he did 45 minutes of devotions every morning with his kids. I don't know. But what I do know is he took responsibility for the spiritual life of his family. Fathers, we are called to do the same thing. As fathers, we are called to take responsibility. Now that doesn't mean that uh, all of our kids and our wife is, are, are going to be perfectly, have perfect little Christians all the time. But the point is, is that we will lead our families as best as we possibly can to follow Jesus. And if we are doing things that are causing our children or our wives to walk away because we are not being the leaders we should be in the spiritual aspect, we are failing. Let's take a, 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 some advice from Joshua and let's take responsibility for our families. Remember Adam, uh, back at the fall, Adam failed at this. He didn't take responsibility for Eve whatsoever. She went to the tree, she ate, and then we're told in Genesis that she turned and gave it to Adam who was with her. What a failure. A failure of a man who would stand there and let his wife sin to watch what would happen. How weak. How pathetic. And yet, how many of us of men do the same thing as we look at our families and we let them go in directions we know they shouldn't, and we ourselves go in directions we shouldn't go? We need to take responsibility for our family's spirituality. Their salvation doesn't depend on us, their salvation depends on Jesus, but we should be leading them to Jesus. That is our calling as fathers, is our calling as parents, but that's not what today's sermon's about, so that's a rabbit trail. We'll get back to the, the, the text, but just as a Father's Day encouragement, let us be the spiritual leaders, let us take responsibility in that. So as we continue on, Israel must choose Yahweh over other gods. They must serve God completely. And here's in the same idea, it's all about the same thing. Israel must not share their devotion. Verses 19 through 20, hardest verses in this passage to understand. Probably as I read them, you're like, what? Because this is kind of crazy to think about, but we got to take it in context. Verses 19 and 20, this is what we see. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. Wait a minute. Joshua's saying you can't serve God and that he's not going to forgive us? Wait, this is against everything we know about God. God has empowered us. to. He asked us to serve him. Why would he ask us to do something if it was impossible? And and, and beyond that, we're told that God is a forgiving God, a God who is full of mercy. And yet it says here that he he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Let's take in context what we've seen so far in in the chapter of 24 here in Joshua. Joshua is being very clear that he is talking about undivided devotion, that he is talking about not being idolatrous, about not following other gods. And so when we get to this passage, and you say, where do we get that? Well, think, when Joshua told the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, first and foremost, let's just say it this way, so we all have this understanding, God has to empower us to be able to serve the Lord well. We can't do it in our own strength because we are feeble sinners. And I think that is somewhat the truth that Joshua is speaking But I think it goes even deeper than that. I think when he says you're not able to serve the Lord, he gives two reasons. He says you're not able to serve the Lord because he is a holy God and he is a jealous God. Why would Joshua bring these two things up? Well, in the context of thinking about Israel being called to full devotion and not sharing their devotion with any other, when Joshua says you are not able to fully serve Yahweh and other gods at the same time, he's saying you can't serve God and your false gods. He's already said once in the passage, and we'll say again, put away your gods, put away your idols. Pause for a second and realize that through the book of Joshua, the people of Israel are still holding on to some idols. They've been watching God do all of these things, and apparently they still had idols and false gods in their possession. They still had that in the background. And Joshua says, get rid of them. Get rid of your false gods. And then he says, look, you can't serve God. You can't serve God completely. It's that idea of complete. You can't do it if you have other gods in your life because he is a holy God. He is set apart. He is uniquely pure above all else. And therefore, you can't just serve him as one of many because he is holy. He is set apart from all the others. And then Joshua says, not only is he holy, but he is jealous. Now, we don't like this word, but jealous is a good thing. If a man is trying to move in on my wife, I'm going to get angry and I'm going to do something about it. And that is not a bad jealousy. That is a good jealousy. And God says, I'm jealous. I don't want to share your love and devotion with these false, awful, terrible gods that are just going to steal life from you. I want to give life to you and therefore I am jealous. And so it's obvious here that what is being said is you can't serve God while you're serving other gods as well. He's not just one of the many. He's not just a part of your life. He needs to be all of it. And Joshua says, you can't do it. You can't live this way. You can't have him be your God and still serve other gods. That's why in verse 20, he says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. He's very clear here that this half-heartedness or having two hearts, dividing your heart is not what God is calling Israel to. And he says you can't serve him the way you say you're serving him. Keep in mind they just got done basically restating everything that Joshua had said and then saying, yes, we're going to serve God. And Joshua says, no, you're not because you're not willing to give up your false gods. That's the context that we see here. And also, by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 31. i got to read this passage. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 31. This is where I think chapter 24 takes a turn for the depressing. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And we're going to just read a few verses here. I'm going to give you a little bit of context, but 14 through 18 is what we're going to read. Moses is about to die, and God comes to Moses, and he says, Look, Joshua is going to take over for you. Joshua knows this. He's with Moses. Uh, J- Moses summons Joshua. He tells him, You're going to be the one that's going to lead Israel. Be strong and courageous, he says. And he commissions Joshua, and God commissions Joshua. And Joshua is still with Moses, and that's where we find ourselves in Deuteronomy thirty-one, fourteen through 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the day approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. So far, so good. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them that they may be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. Joshua is commissioned to lead Israel And he's commissioned to a failing mission. God says, you're going to go into the land and the people, they're going to be adulterers. They're going to leave me and they're going to serve other gods. That's what Moses is told with Joshua standing right beside him. Joshua knows this. No wonder Joshua needed to be strong and courageous to lead the people even though he knew which direction they were going. So I just want to say this, when Joshua says to the people, no, you aren't able to serve the Lord, it's probably mostly because Joshua knows they can't. Because God has already said they're going to leave God and they're going to go the way of foreign gods. Joshua knows this. And so he's talking to the people and he's saying, look, God's already told me what's going to happen. You guys aren't going to be able to do this. And Joshua is calling out to them and said, don't serve other gods. Even though he knows where it's going, he is pouring himself out as God is using him to speak to the people of Israel. So that's where you think about it now. All of Joshua has a little bit of a bitter tone. Because you think about it, every good thing that's happening, what's coming, is that much worse. In a few weeks after Justin comes, we're going to go ahead and dive into the book of Judges. Get ready for that one. Because it's not a pretty picture of what happens to Israel when they forsake him, when they forsake Yahweh and go the way of other gods. We got to get to our third point this morning. As we looked at our first couple points in this covenant, first of all, is based on God's promises. It requires Israel's full devotion. We see here at the end of this, this uh, chapter the covenant is confirmed by a response from the people. It's confirmed by a response. This is important, that covenants were ratified by a response of the people, in a sense, a signature, like it was, it was the witness to say, yes, we are willing to follow this covenant. And that's exactly what Israel seems to do here towards the end of this chapter. We see that the people declare their devotion to Yahweh. That was their response. They declare their devotion to Yahweh. Verses 16 through 18, verse 21, verse 24. Three times, Israel says, we will serve the God of Israel. We will serve Yahweh. And we read that and we can get excited and we can say, yes, they finally get it. They're following God. They're listening to what Joshua is saying. But as I've already said, we know the book of Judges. We know back to the book of Deuteronomy, things are not going to go the way that they say they are. Notice three times they speak their devotion. They've done this before, by the way, in the book of Exodus. Uh, Three times they say they're going to serve God, only to be followed by the golden calf incident. A little bit of uh, foreshadowing here. By the way, this idea of declaring their devotion, what it is is they're using their words to say something, but their actions aren't backing it up. They're saying they're going to serve God, but what proof do we have? You can say that you're going to serve God, that doesn't mean you will. Actually, this continues on through the people of Israel. It continues all the way to the days of the Pharisees, and I would dare say it continues on till today, that people will use words and say the right thing and declare allegiance to God, but not really mean it. Many of you know Isaiah 29, 13. It says, you know, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what Isaiah says, Jesus quotes it of the Pharisees. They're, they worship me with their words, but their hearts are far from me. Words aren't what God wants. And yet that's what Israel is giving. It says, says, yes, we will follow the Lord. Look at what he's done for us. We will follow him. So Joshua calls the people to action. So the people declare their devotion three times, and Joshua wants to make sure that they really mean it. So the people are called to action. In verse 23, we see this. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give your heart fully to God and get rid of your false gods. That's what Joshua says. He says, okay, you're saying it. You're saying it. That sounds great, but now get rid of your gods. Verse 14, by the way, he already had said this one other time. When he says to serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness, he says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt. They are still carrying gods, maybe figuratively, but most likely... Physically, they are carrying gods with them. And Joshua says, get rid of them. Apparently, they still had these gods and they needed to be put away. Joshua, now this is interesting. Going back, remember we talked about Shechem. Uh, In Shechem, we see a story that happens. Uh, You can turn there if you wish. I'm going to go there uh, and you can listen along or you can turn there. But we're going to go to Genesis 35 quickly. Genesis chapter 35. And we see a story that happens in Shechem. We see a, a, a narrative with Jacob. And remember, we talked about his devotion to God. In Genesis 35, 2 through 4, this is what we read. This is after uh, a lot of things have happened. Esau and Jacob have made up. Uh, you remember the rape of Dinah? That has happened. But but Jacob is about to go to Bethel, and he's going to dwell there. He's going to make an altar to God up there. But then in verse 2 of chapter 35 of Genesis, it says this. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress. And they have been... And has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them in the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Interesting parallel story there. I believe that Joshua was hoping and expecting the people to do the same thing that Joshua's, or Jacob's family did. Jacob's, Jacob says, put away your gods. It's time to serve God alone. And his family and the people with him did it. And they buried their false gods by a tree in Shechem. And I have to believe that Joshua is hoping the same thing because twice he says, put away your gods. That they will bury their gods and get rid of their gods the same way that Jacob's family did. And yet they don't do it. We have no record of them doing anything physical to get rid of the gods that they are carrying. That people didn't do it. So then part of their response was to declare, but they were meant to have action. But finally, Joshua wants them to remember that the response is to remember what has happened here, the, the, to remember the covenant. Verses 22 through 28, we see this section in which Joshua uh, is telling the people, You need to remember what happened here. He, first of all, says, You are witnesses against yourselves. That you have chosen the Lord. In other words, he's saying, look, you guys are saying that you're going to follow the Lord. Well, you're going to have to be witnesses amongst yourselves. In other words, you're going to have to keep each other accountable to this. You're going to have to look at each other. And when you look at each other, you're going to have to say, this is the covenant that we made. Or this isn't going to work. he says, And they say, yes, we are witnesses. We have witnessed this covenant. We have witnessed it together. We will hold each other accountable. And yet they won't. But that is a call even to us today to keep one another accountable. That we can be witnesses against each other in a sense that we have said we are going to follow Jesus completely. And we need to have accountability. And that is what Joshua starts with. He talks about that they need to be witnesses against themselves. Then we also see that this whole thing is written down, that it's written down in the book of God, that it is written for people to remember so that it won't be forgotten. Not only that, in these passages, we see that Joshua makes a monument, another stone monument to remember the covenant that God has made with Israel, and more specifically, to remember the covenant that Israel said that they were going to abide by when they worshiped God alone. And he says that this is, they're going to, this monument will be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. In other words, you have no excuse when you disobey because the, the reminder is right here. It's right here for all to see. This will remind you of your promise when you do deal falsely. If you do, lest you do. If you do, then you have no excuse. And then Joshua sends people away to their own land, foreshadowing that they would forget. They go to their own land, they go to their own inheritance, and I want to say this ancient, uh, I don't know if it's ancient, but this proverb or this cliche that is always said, out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. As they walk away from this reminder, we know that they're going to go the wrong direction. By the way, back to the idea uh, of this monument that was built, I want to read where it was put. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Anybody else remember a terebinth tree? This very likely could have been, probably was, I can't guarantee it, the same tree that those idols were buried under in Genesis. And actually we're told that when Abraham makes the covenant with God, when God makes that covenant with Abraham in the first time, that he is under a tree. Very good chance it's the same tree. This was meant to be a tree that was to give hope. And yet the people didn't do what they were called to do. And there's, a, there's this monument that is set there to remind them. And I believe it's a monument that is there to remind them of their promise, their commitment. But I believe, and it has to be, later on in life when they see that tree after they've gone their own way, and they see that reminder, they see that tree, it's got to be a reminder of the guilt. It's got to be a reminder of their failure as well. And so we see in Joshua 24 what seems to be a call to obedience, and that's exactly what it is. It is a call to obedience, but it's also this understanding that Joshua is saying you need to fully give yourself to God, not just part way. Israel was a syncretistic people. In other words, they said Yahweh is one of our gods. We will serve Yahweh, but we'll also serve other gods. And You know, 90% will serve God, but that 10% we have these false gods, or maybe 50-50. Who knows? Everyone was probably in a different place. But Israel, obviously, here throughout Joshua 24, is not going to submit to complete devotion. And as I said before, the spoiler of all this is when we go to Judges, we're going to see that Israel does not keep this covenant, just like Deuteronomy 31 told us. But I'm not going to dive into all the things that Israel does wrong and when they forget this covenant and when they walk away from God. We will do that when we do get to Judges, which will be in just a few weeks. However, I want us to remind, I want to remind us of one thing this morning because this can be, like I said at the beginning, fairly depressing. That Israel is doomed, because they're not going to follow God completely, but Joshua is begging, and God is saying, this is what I have done, now respond to me. And they respond by saying they're going to follow him, but they don't do anything about it. They don't get rid of their gods, and it's going to end up destroying Israel. And we'll talk even more about that next week as we look at the, the death of Joshua and all those who are around him. But I want us to be very clear here that the failure of this covenant... The failure that this, this does not work. And really, the whole old covenant of law and abiding with God, it is not working here. It doesn't work. Israel walks away from it. Joshua, as a mediator of this covenant, wasn't good enough. And I say that because I'm saying this, we need a new one. We need a new covenant that is not mediated by Joshua, a man that God used, but a new covenant that is mediated by Jesus Christ himself. Because that covenant will be able to be kept. Because Jesus will give us the power to do it. The failure of this covenant shows us the need for a new one mediated by Jesus Christ. Joshua, as godly as he was, could not be the one who would mediate a covenant that would last forever. But Jesus is. And I'm not just making that up. We look in Hebrews and we see this. Book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. I'm talking about Jesus, and we could go back and we could read a lot about what Jesus has done, and it talks about his blood being shed so that we could have eternal life and so we could have forgiveness. But in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, talking about Jesus Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transmissions, transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant to those who can now have eternal life and who can be redeemed from their sins. Remember back in Joshua where it says, The Lord will not forgive. That phrase was talking about the fact that if Israel continued to serve God and other gods, that they were going to face consequences and God would not forgive them for their continued hypocrisy, for their continued divided heart. But real forgiveness is offered in the new covenant through Jesus. Going back a verse, I want to read this too. It says, How much more Uh, It talks about the blood of bulls and goats in verse 13, that it sprinkles defiled persons with the ashes, it sanctifies them, it purifies them. Then it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Listen, Joshua and Israel couldn't make an unbreakable covenant, but Jesus has through his death. In fact, this verse we just read, only Jesus can give us the ability to serve the living God. Is something Israel couldn't do. Notice at the end of verse 14, he Jesus, through his death, purifies our conscience from dead works. To do what? To serve the living God. If we want to serve God, we need to do it through Jesus, through his death, through his power, through his strength. Because we can't do it on our own. We can't fulfill the covenant of putting God first without the help and the strength of Jesus and his death on our behalf. We can't forget that. When we look at the covenant that was made in Israel, from all the way from Abraham, all the way now to Joshua making this covenant, we can't overlook the fact that Jesus is the one who has brought the new covenant through his blood, through his death. And we can trust in him, and we can throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus as he is the one who can forgive us. And that leads us to our conclusion this morning. First question is, have you personally received God's promise through Jesus? the new covenant, that God gives forgiveness through the shedding of Jesus' blood. He died on the cross, he rose again after living a perfect life, he was the perfect sacrifice, as Hebrew tells us, so that we could, have, we could experience forgiveness, and we could experience a relationship with God, so that we can truly serve God because of his work. Have you accepted this promise through Jesus? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you said, I don't want to live for this world's gods anymore, I don't want to live for this world anymore, I want to live Live for Jesus because he died for me. Today is the day that you can accept Jesus as your savior. Commit your life to him. And no longer live a divided life. But move forward towards Jesus. The one who gives the ultimate and best covenant. But then the next question is for all of us here today. And this is a question that I've been wrestling with for days. This question is this, does Jesus, if you are sitting here today specifically, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you call yourself a a Christian, you profess to know him, you say you're going to serve him, just like Israel, by the way, was saying that they were going to serve him, maybe we say it really, really well, but does Jesus have our full devotion? Does Jesus have our full devotion? Or are we half hearted, two hearted? Are we dividing our heart? Or are we worshiping God? Are we serving Jesus in sincerity and faithfulness, in complete devotion? You see, God doesn't just want a little piece of us. And He doesn't want to just be a part of our lives. But I think a lot of us live that way that Jesus, we pull Him out when we need Him. But man, He's not everything to us, He's just part of our lives. Jesus isn't part of our life. It's not like, oh, it's time to worship Jesus, time to go to church. Now I go to work, then I go to my family, then I go to my sporting game, then I go to this, then I go to that, and then I can come back and see Jesus again. No, Jesus is meant to be everything. No matter where you go, what you do, what you find yourself doing, Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of me. And yet we don't. We hold so much back because it's ours. Just like Israel wouldn't put away their gods, we won't put away ours. So let's not think somehow we are better than Israel. We all have things in our lives that are drawing us away from Jesus Christ. We all have things in our lives that are becoming more important than Jesus himself. We could go through a list of specifics. I could give you a list of specifics for me. But I don't know what it is for you. What is it that is drawing your worship and drawing your service away from God and to yourself? Because whatever that is, that is an idol. It is a false god. We might not call it that, but that's what it is. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus says this, and he's talking specifically about money, but I believe it really applies to anything. In Matthew 6.24, he says you cannot have two masters. You could only serve one, is basically what he says. Matthew 6, I'm going to read it, just because I know I just misquoted it. Matthew 6 so important to get this concept of what Jesus talks about in following him in Matthew chapter 6. 6:24 No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Remember what Joshua said to Israel? You can't have it both ways. You can't be in the middle. It's either Jesus or nothing. It's not part Jesus, part something else. God wants your full heart. He wants your full devotion. He wants my full devotion. And I will readily admit that I fail in this every single day. But remember that Jesus has made a new covenant for us that Jesus has died for us. Jesus has shed his blood so that we can be forgiven and we don't have to live in guilt and we can move forward in his strength and in his power so that day by day we can get rid of those idols. But let's not be a people who says we're going to worship God when we're still harboring false gods, when we're not moving forward and moving away from them, but we're still clinging to those things when Jesus says, cling to me above all Else, And so our final question today is simply this. How will you respond? If We know God, what he has done for us. We read about what he did for Israel. He has sent Jesus to die for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins and not live in guilt and shame any longer and have eternal life and live forever with, in perfect bliss with Jesus himself, with God himself. That is what we've been given. That is the promise that God has for revealed and fulfilled and he says what i want in return is your full devotion not just part not just some get rid of your gods that you're still worshiping and worship me alone that's what jesus wants that's what he desires and let me just tell you this that's not going to be a bad thing for you you might think it is if i give this up then what will i do if i give that up i don't know how my life will look I promise you the word the Bible is full of truth after truth that when you fully give yourselves to God he will give you joy and peace and all the things that you so desire he will give those to you but they're not going to come from this world they're only going to come from him that doesn't mean that life will be perfect and it won't be hard but it means you'll have Jesus and that if you have him what else do you need so how will you respond how will I respond Will we just say, yes, Jesus, we will follow you? Will we just sing words and say, yes, you are my all in all? Or will we actually mean it and do it? Let us not be a people that has said that we worship God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Let our lips and our hearts be one as we fully follow Jesus. I'm going to pray to close this time, and the worship team is going to come, and they're going to play a final song. And I know this is not normal for our church, But as I've read this this week, I think we need to give an opportunity for you to respond in a very physical way. Israel was given an opportunity to respond in a very physical way and they failed to. If there is something in your life, something that you know that is a God in your life that is taking your devotion, that is taking your attention away from God, or if for whatever reason you just know that you are not fully devoted to Jesus and you're not pursuing that, I'm not saying perfection, I'm just saying you're not pursuing that and you know you're stuck, do something about it. So we're going to give you an opportunity to come up. And it's not going to give any, it's not a special pill. It's not going to make everything better. We're not going to play the song 3,000 times. We're going to get, if you need to deal with God, now is your time. And I'm going to, you could say, well, I can just do that in my chair. Absolutely, you can just do that in your chair. But I will say this. If we're going to be keeping each other accountable, being witnesses for and against each other, well, then if you come up and you do this publicly, then that's something that you will give permission for your body of people who love you to say, we will help you whatever it takes. We will be in this journey together. And so I would encourage you, if there's anything, and I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I don't know what that is, but if there's anything that God is saying, you need to get this right, you need to be fully, fully invested and make the time as we sing the final song this morning a time to come up and just get that right with the Lord. And if you need somebody to pray with uh, or talk to, you can grab me or, or we can have elders that are ready. If, if you want to talk to an elder, they'd love to do that. And so with that being said, I'm going to close our time in prayer. We'll start singing. And if God is leading you to get something right with him, to give something that you need to give, to cast away some idol, whatever it is, that'll be your opportunity. Let's pray.